Eco Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello and welcome to Eco Report for WFHB. I'm Juliana Daly and I'm David Lyman. Today we have an Indiana environmental reporter news story created by Sophie Bird about grants that are available for water infrastructure improvements. We also have a feature from Norm Holy, Part 2, of an interview with Dave Applin about the proposed pebble mine and the threat it would pose to the Alaskan wilderness. That's coming up later in the program, but first your environmental headlines. According to a new study by the Climate Accountability Institute, 20 companies are responsible for 35% of carbon dioxide and methane emissions globally. Those emissions amount to 480 billion tons since 1965. Coincidentally, that year was the one in which the president of the American Petroleum Institute acknowledged that the fossil fuel industry was propelling, quote, the catastrophic consequences of pollution, unquote. Twelve of the 20 companies are state-owned and cause as much as 20% of total emissions. Of investor-owned corporations, Chevron tops the list and is second to Saudi Aramco, and just ahead of Exxon. Shell, BP, and ConocoPhillips are also among the 20. Michael Mann, one of the world's leading climate scientists, observed, quote, The great tragedy of the climate crisis is that 7.5 billion people must pay the price in the form of a degraded planet so that a couple of dozen polluting interests can continue to make record profits, unquote. Procter & Gamble is clear-cutting Canada's ancient boreal forest to make toilet paper. By sourcing its toilet paper from 100% virgin forest fiber, the company is exacerbating the climate crisis. The Canadian boreal forest stores huge amounts of carbon in its trees and soil. Every time someone logs the forest, the carbon is released and added to the planet's already overheated atmosphere. In fact, every year clear-cutting in the boreal forest results in the release of almost 5.5 million passenger cars worth of carbon into the environment. Clear-cutting the forest seriously threatens wildlife the forest supports, including many North American songbirds and threatened species like the boreal caribou, Canada lynx, and pine marten. The boreal forest is also home to hundreds of indigenous communities. Procter & Gamble doesn't need virgin trees to manufacture good toilet paper. A much better option would be to use fiber from recycled materials and alternative surfaces such as residue from agriculture operations that don't require logging virgin wood or old-growth forest. Google is making substantial financial contributions to more than a dozen groups that deny climate crisis is real, according to The Guardian. The tech behemoth 
recently boasted about its net zero emissions targets, its billions of dollars in wind and solar investments, and its CEO insisted that sustainability has been one of its earliest core values. However, that action has not stopped it from also donating to organizations that have lobbied against climate legislation, questioned climate science, or actively fought to reverse Obama-era environmental regulations. A transparency document from Google shows that more than a dozen climate science-denying groups are among the organizations that receive the most substantial contributions from Google. One of the groups that has received support is the libertarian think tank, the Competitive Enterprise Institute, which was instrumental in convincing President Trump to leave the Paris Agreement and has been critical of his administration for not dismantling enough environmental regulations. William Henry Harrison so enjoyed hunting ruffed grouse on his property in Vincennes that he named his estate Grouseland. The population of the bird has declined since the 1800s. Hunters have not been allowed to hunt ruffed grouse since 2015. Grouse need snow. They have an unusual behavior. When the snow is fluffy, this bird creates one of the winter's most unusual wildlife shelters. The ruffed grouse plunges into the snow. The ruffed grouse flies along and dive bombs headfirst into deep, fluffy snow, completely submerging itself. Its body heat then creates a sealed dome under the snow, essentially its own igloo. The Department of Natural Resources responded to a citizen petition to list ruffed grouse as endangered. For many years, the agency has said that ruffed grouse will likely be wiped out because of mature forests. The DNR promotes logging to create younger forests, which are more favorable habitat for grouse. They have ignored any connection with climate change. The endangered bird status would keep the ruffed grouse from being hunted or trapped for sport or commercial use. The DNR said they will consider adding the bird to the endangered species list at its November 19th meeting at Fort Benjamin Harrison State Park in Indianapolis. It is odd that the DNR ignores what the Audubon Society says is the real reason the grouse have disappeared, climate change. Their maps show a long-standing migration northward of this bird. The grouse is now scarce, even in southern Michigan. By 2080, they project that grouse hunters will need to go almost to James Bay in Canada to find significant numbers of grouse. Next up, we have a new story on grants available for water infrastructure improvement from the Indiana Environmental Reporter. The state of Indiana has more than doubled the amount of money it can loan to communities looking to upgrade its water infrastructure. Here's IER's Sophie Byrne. Our mission at EPA is to ensure that all Americans, regardless of their zip code, have clean air, clean water, and clean land. We can't accomplish our mission without dated or ineffective infrastructure, which is why modernizing our nation's infrastructure and protecting our water resources is a top priority for President Trump. That's EPA Administrator Andrew Wheeler explaining the EPA's mission and its requirements for success earlier this year. At that same press conference, Wheeler announced the administration would use a 2014 financial tool in order to get that accomplished. At EPA, we are delivering on the President's agenda by providing the financing to get much-needed water projects off the ground. Through our Water Infrastructure Finance and Innovation Act, 
WIFI loan program, we're able to provide long-term, low-cost supplemental loans for water-related projects throughout the nation. On October 9th, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency announced a $436 million loan to the Indiana Finance Authority to support water infrastructure projects across the state. The loan was issued as a part of the Water Infrastructure Finance and Innovation Act, a 2014 law that established a federal credit program for public and private water and wastewater infrastructure projects. Indiana Governor Eric Holcomb said the partnership with the EPA would help empower communities across Indiana to take water systems to the next level. The state will combine the loan money with funds from the Indiana State Revolving Fund to lend a total of $900 million to support water projects in 20 communities. The need for water infrastructure improvements will become more apparent as climate change keeps modifying the way precipitation falls in the state. According to researchers at the Indiana Climate Change Impacts Assessment, the type of precipitation and when it falls are changing and will continue to change. The researchers found that the rate of precipitation change has quadrupled since 1959. The state gets an additional 1.33 inches of precipitation every decade. By mid-century, Indiana will see about 6 to 8 percent more yearly rainfall than it averaged in the past. The ICCIA researchers also found that climate change has affected and will continue to affect the number of days with extreme precipitation events. That means there will be more precipitation in shorter amounts of time, potentially overwhelming wastewater systems. The loan will provide $547.5 million to fund the Dig Indy Tunnel System, a 28-mile-long network of 18-foot diameter deep rock tunnels built 250 feet beneath the city of Indianapolis. The $2 billion project is projected to reduce sewer overflows by up to 97%. The city of Evansville will receive a loan of $182.4 million for long-term control plan implementation projects to address combined sewer overflows into the Ohio River, Bee Slough, and Pigeon Creek. Many of the loans will help communities improve water treatment plants, which should improve the drinking water quality for residents. The state will also provide loans to communities with less than 1,000 residents like Marshall, Potoka, Schneider, and Shirley. In the following feature, Norm Holy speaks with Dave Applin about the proposed pebble mine. really have depended upon catching salmon, so are the tribes able to, to capture adequate numbers? Well, in Bristol Bay, certainly. You know, Bristol Bay, uh, the Yupik and Athabascan people that have inhabited that area for thousands of years, you're right, Norm, they've subsisted largely on salmon and the protein that the uh, salmon bring back every summer. And, and additionally, you know, all of those salmon that return, they spawn, and then they die, all of those marine nutrients are brought into that freshwater system and fertilize that system so that, in addition to salmon, uh, everything in the marine community from whales and seals and farther up into the freshwater community with eagles and, and uh, uh even other fish like rainbow trout all feed on the salmon along the way. But the nutrients also fertilize the vegetation that allows the moose and the caribou and the beavers and the other uh, mammals and birds that thrive in the area. Uh, that return of nutrients fertilizes that whole system, and the indigenous people that live within the region have depended on subsistence uh, harvest of those activities for generations. Um, those communities of folks out throughout the Bristol Bay system also participate in the commercial fishery, which I think is celebrating its 130th 
anniversary of a successful, well-managed fishery that's fed Alaskans, and in fact, many people across the country for uh, for generations. So the the at least in Bristol Bay and in most places in Alaska, uh, there are still subsistence harvest of of salmon going on. But if you followed the news, in some locations we've had erratic populations of salmon returns, especially Chinook or king salmon and, uh, and other species as well. So uh, I think uh, climate change and other factors are contributing to uh, sort of an altered map right now and a, and a more challenging environment for successful salmon uh, reproduction. But Bristol Bay is held strong, and uh, as I mentioned earlier, this year 56 million salmon returned. I think 43 million were caught by the commercial fishery, and uh, we still have a robust functioning ecosystem, which is uh, becoming less and less typical around the U.S. and around the planet as well. So um, I'd like to ask you just about how the fishing, the fishery works, because, for example, on the uh, Atlantic coast, uh, the Northeast, there used to be a huge salmon fishery in the New England states and Canada, but now that wild fishery is totally gone. And uh, so how how has it been managed in Alaska to retain its viability? It's interesting. You know, salmon play a, a strong role in the state of Alaska's history when the folks that had moved up here from the lower 48 and elsewhere uh, back in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, began to resent the influence and control of outside uh, processors and, and companies that were using fish traps, and they were corking off rivers and streams to harvest salmon, and there was a real push in the state for statewide management of that salmon fishery, and that contributed to the push for statehood uh, back in the 50s. Um, right now, it's a really interesting fishery. It's it's a small boat fishery. There's a 32-foot limit to the length of a fishing boat. There's uh, requirements managed by the state as to the uh, length of the net and the, the mesh size of the net. Uh, this is mostly a uh, gill net fishery, so the, the nets are deployed when the salmon are seen by the drift fishery, which are the small boats. There are permits along the shorelines that are uh, given out to folks so they can fish from shore, because most salmon migrate home to their natal streams uh, very close into the shoreline. All of that is managed by the state of Alaska, and there's a a very sophisticated process of monitoring the return of those salmon throughout the season, and real-time decisions made as to when and where to open fisheries for these thousands of small boats that... uh, with with some limitations, are al- allowed to move through that system. So uh, as the salmon begin to return in, in May and June, there are test fisheries that are happening farther out the bay to anticipate the return. And as the, the salmon return to those major river systems and streams, there are counters that are established at weirs, uh, towers built with the person sitting up on top of the counter with a clicker, and uh, doing their best to count these salmon returning so that the state fisheries managers can make sure that there's an adequate return 
of spawning salmon. That, that's called escapement here in Alaska. They, they make sure that there's adequate escapement to make sure that this is a perpetual and healthy system. And uh, so there'll be closures on one system and openings on the other, and the, uh, the fish are allowed to make it back and spawn and, and continue that uh, cycle. And so it's a very well-managed fishery that's been successful for over 130 years and is, I think, in many ways unique. When the salmon are about ready to, to move into the bay, is, is there much temperature change? I understand, for example, that, that some of the rivers have been so warm, like the Fraser, for example, that the salmon have not moved up into the river, so they've been waiting out in front you know, to, uh, to a time when the temperature of the water has, has reduced, and then the, the uh, orcas come in and take them up and... Um, is that is that true in Bristol Bay or not, or is it such a? You know, you know this was a really uh, strange and interesting summer. I was out in the community of Port Hyden, which is on Bristol Bay, kind of halfway out the Alaska Peninsula this summer in July, and uh, this summer was remarkably hot and dry in Alaska. Here in my uh, hometown of Homer, we hit ninety degrees on the Fourth of July. This is unusual. There's, there are fires still burning around the state. They had a very active fire season. So that uh, heat that came here at the end of June and into July warmed up those streams. And uh, in many circumstances, the salmon didn't uh, waited it out or didn't return uh, on schedule or in some cases actually died of that, uh, that warm water in those heat extremes. Um, and that was felt up in the Yukon River and the Koyukuk River farther no- north up toward Norton Sound. Um, there was some waiting around in Bristol Bay, and in fact, one of the smaller uh, rivers in Bristol Bay, the uh, Yashik River, uh, had a die-off. But for the most part, uh, due to Bristol Bay's hydrology and their deep gravels and the amount of fresh water that moves subsurface in the system, uh, the the rivers themselves actually eventually uh, uh, cooled and allowed the salmon to re- return and spawn successfully. So uh, Bristol Bay is kind of unique in that way. It, it has the, the size and the hydrology and, at least for now, the uh, freshwater supplies that, uh, while it did cause a delay in the return in some rivers, uh, it was still very successful in uh, achieving the escapement goals and and perpetuating the system for another generation of fish. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm David Lyman. Support for Eco Report comes from Blooming Foods Market and Deli, Bloomington's locally grown co-op grocery since 1976, offering products with a focus on local, fair trade, natural, and organic with support for farmers, producers, agencies, and artisans. Blooming Foods Market in Delhi on East 3rd Street near College Mall, West 6th Street near the Courthouse Square, and Shreve Hall on the Ivy Tech campus. Are you looking for a way to make a difference on environmental issues? 
Here at EcoReport, we are currently looking for reporters and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we are all affected by global climate disruption and the ongoing assaults on our air, land, and water. We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world, particularly those who are active in south-central Indiana. All levels of experience and all ages are welcome, and we provide the training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. To volunteer for EcoReport, give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now we have a segment on the secret life of fungi, Mushrooms in Space. The former Russian space station Mir reportedly smelled like rotten apples, and globs of mold floated in the electrical panels. For over a decade before the station was decommissioned, fungi flourished on the Mir, demonstrating its resilience in space. In fact, the fungi kingdom has been in space since the beginning. I'm Kaylin Huffman Brower, and I'll explore the past, present, and future of mushrooms in space in this segment of The Secret Life of Fungi. Cosmonauts and their international colleagues using the low-orbit research lab were plagued with fungi that came into the Mir space station naturally on the space explorer's skin. The fungi had no hostile intent. It was simply doing its organic recycler job, eating dead skin as the cosmonauts naturally shed it. On Earth, with gravity's slowing spore distribution, this is the kind of tiny microbe that human hosts would never notice. But over time, in the confines of the space station, a whole variety of dead skin decomposers started to etch into unlikely surfaces all over the mirror, even on the quartz glass of fairy viewports. The fungi spread out, networking with its mycelium, naturally seeking connection. In many ways, fungi are particularly resilient space travelers, even outside human transport. Spores can withstand harsh conditions like outer space, remaining dormant for extremely long periods of time. Extreme cold? No problem. Cosmic radiation? Fungi can handle it. Astrobiologists have long theorized about the nature of life throughout our galaxy, speculating that pre-nucleic acids, in other words, the building blocks of life, spring naturally from the cosmos as matter organizes. These building blocks, and even fully formed spore, travel on comets or on interstellar plasmic winds. This interstellar migration, known as panspermia, isn't just the stuff of science fiction. Life, especially dormant microbial life, could have been introduced to Earth by traveling from distant planets. Today, astrobiologists are actively involved in applied research, currently testing how humans can establish future colonies on other planetary bodies. On the far side of the moon, a Chinese lab is germinating seeds and growing plants. And as of January 15, 2019, cotton seed has sprouted. The unmanned lab also holds fly eggs and yeast, a type of fungi, both of which will need oxygen to survive. The Chinese are testing the photosynthesis and oxygen-generating capabilities of the plants germinated on the moon. 
At the same time, NASA has a rover on Mars and plans a human outpost on the Red Planet by the 2030s. NASA scientists are also evaluating the role of the Fungi Kingdom in space exploration. No doubt there will be room for mushrooms in space. Space travelers can grow mushrooms for nutrient-rich food. For long-term colonies, fungi will serve as essential soil builders for other food crops. Also, as cosmonauts learned on the space station Mir, fungi will travel with the colonists' microbiomes on their skin and in their guts. The fungi kingdom is an inextricable part of human ecosystems. I'm Kaylin Huffman Brower with The Secret Life of Fungi, here for you on Eco Report. And now for some upcoming local events. Indigo Birding Nature Tours offers a variety of local tours during the peak of all fall colors. Yellowwood Kayak Tours will be held on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays starting Friday, October 18th. Brown County History Tours will be on Mondays starting Monday, October 21st. For more details, go to indigobirding.com to register or call David Rupp at 812-679-8978. Paddle on Griffey Lake at the Fall Foliage Family Float on Saturday, October 19th from 1 to 2.30 p.m. See the fall foliage from different perspectives as you float along. Boats, paddles, and life vests are provided. Meet at the Boathouse. Register at bloomington.in.gov parks. The Indiana Forest Alliance meeting is scheduled for Saturday, October 19th from 2 p.m. until you want to go home at Mount Calvary Church located at 216 Mount Calvary Road in Freedom, Indiana. Biologist Jerry Sweeten will be talking about Indiana's rivers. Films will be shown about private roads being built in our forest and IFA's efforts to find the elusive northern long-eared bat will be discussed, plus food, fire, music, and more. Go to bit.ly slash IFA membership meeting to register. Spring Mill State Park will host a workshop for women landowners on Sunday, October 27th from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. in the Lakeview Activity Center. The free workshop is presented by Danielle Williams and Samantha Dame from Pheasants Forever. The workshop will concentrate on invasive species, how to identify and control them. For more information, call 812-849-3534 or email sherrybelt at sbelt at dnr.in.gov. Take the Autumn Owl Prowl on Sunday, October 27th from 8 to 9.30 p.m. at Leonard Springs Nature Park. When the sun sets, owls awaken to go in search of prey. Learn the mysteries of these amazing nocturnal hunters, which species coexist in our area and hope to hear or see one in action. Dress for the weather and bring a flashlight. Register by October 21st at bloomington.in.gov slash parks.
And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy and Linda Green. Today's local news story was produced by Sophie Bird of the Indiana Environmental Reporter. The feature interview with Dave Alpin was produced by Norm Holy and edited by Patrick Callanan. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. David Lyman wrote and edited the script. Patrick Callanan and Kaylin Huffman Brower produced and engineered today's show. For WFHB, I'm David Lyman. And I'm Juliana Daly. And this is Eco Report.